Okay, I can't remember my title, but do you get the point? <clears throat> tried and true, that's it. Okay, tried and true. We're going to talk about a faith that is tried and true because uh, I think one of the things that we see in our context, religious context in the Western church, the Western world, is there are a lot of people who have tried their faith, who have tested faith and found it lacking, found that it is wanting, that it's not really all that useful, it doesn't really change much in their life, that, that they need something better, they need something deeper, they need something more meaningful. Some people have then abandoned church, have abandoned faith in some circumstances, and said, this just doesn't work, and so I don't really need it or want it. And other people have said, and I think this is happening more and more in, in our culture, in our context, where we are, there are people who are saying there is a version of faith and a version of religion, church, that is too superficial, that is not working for me, but I am hungry for something deeper. I want something deeper. I want something more. I want something that doesn't just stay on the surface. I want something that actually is going to change my life, transform me, transform the way I look at the world, transform the way that I look at God. Something that's going to change not only my life, but maybe my relationships. It's going to change uh, the world. Do we have hope in this world that anything can get better or will get better? And there is a longing and there is this hunger. I want something that's more satisfying. I want something that I can rely on. I believe that there is a version of faith that for millennia has been tried and is true. If we'll look for it. If we're willing to go deeper. If we're willing to not just stay on the surface, but actually explore something that is more meaningful. You ever get stuck in a drive-thru? So frustrating. Especially if, um, especially if you're in a hurry and you were thinking to yourself, I really need a coffee. I don't have time to get out of the car and go into the thing. I'm just going to hit the drive-thru. It'll take 30 seconds. I get my coffee, maybe a little snack, whatever. And I'm going on to my meeting or, or wherever I'm going. And then you get into the drive-thru. You order. You move up a little bit. And then it's not moving. Has that ever happened to you? And you're like, I don't know. Did somebody in front of me, you know, I'm here for a coffee. And they've ordered like 10 meals for their entire family and all their friends. And I'm waiting for them to cook on it. And I'm not going anywhere. And now you're looking at the clock because this was supposed to be fast and convenient and easy and get us on our way. And now I'm stuck. That's the problem. You get stuck. After you're ordered, you really can't get out most drive throughs Even if you were like, it's a lost cause. I'm, I'm leaving the coffee and I'm going for it. It's, there's curbs. There's stuff. There's a, you know the restaurant on one side, there's some on the other side. You can't, there's people behind you, people in front of you. You can't go anywhere. This happened to me once. I was coming home. It was late at night. My brother and I were at a baseball game or something. Most stuff was closed, and so, but we were starving. And so we were like, it's going to be fast food. It's going to be McDonald's or something. But I was like, I got to get a burger and fries or something. Let's just drop in. It was probably around midnight, something like this. We'll go through the drive-thru. We really want to get home but we'll go through the drive-thru real quick. So we go to a McDonald's, we get in the drive-thru, we order. That was my experience. We get past the ordering thing. There's a handful of cars in front of us. And then all of a sudden, we're just sitting there. And then people come behind us and they order. Now there's a few more people and a few more people and a few more people. And it's not just 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes, but now five minutes goes by and you start to think, well, this is inconvenient. And then 10 minutes goes by and you start to get frustrated. And then 15 minutes went by and people start honking their horn. You could tell now people are on edge. This has gone from inconvenient to we're going crazy here. 20 minutes goes by 
and people start yelling out their windows. 25 minutes go by and people are getting out of their cars. They're approaching the window. I thought there was going to be a mutiny. We're overthrowing Ronald. And you got these poor, you got these poor teenagers who are inside. And we have asked them that we drive up, we order, we, we want to make sure that when that food comes out, I know it's McDonald's, but it's relatively warm and somewhat fresh. I want you to cook me a burger and french fries and a drink. I want you to bring it to me. I want it to taste good. I want it to be fast. I want it all the rest of it in three minutes. And now it's been like 25 minutes and people are losing their minds. Like I started to get scared. And again, I'm looking on this side. There's a fence right there. On this side, it's the restaurant. There's five cars in front of me. There's 10 cars behind me. We can't go anywhere. It was brutal. Do you know, do you know why it's so brutal? If this has ever happened to you on any level, even if it was 10 minutes or whatever, do you know why? Because we have been conditioned to get it in three minutes. And most of the time, we do, right? This is our expectation. I go through the drive-thru and I can get an entire meal, somewhat hot and fresh, custom to what I like. If I don't want onions, you better not bring it with onions. Right to my car. I don't have to park. I don't have to get out. None of that in three minutes. And we're so conditioned that if we don't get it, we start to get upset, frustrated. I can't believe it. How could this possibly be? We do a TV too. Has this happened? You experienced this? Do you remember that golden window where we watched everything on demand? There was a time, some of us remember, we had to live in a place where we would have to look at the schedule for TV, and if there was something we wanted to watch, we had to wait for it, we had to make sure we were home. Man, growing up, anybody with TGIF, and then your parents wanted to go do something on a Friday night, you're like, not if we're not home by 8 o'clock on the dot, because if you miss it, you miss it. And they might rerun it, but you have no idea when they might rerun it. It could be months before, and you might not even know what episode. If you miss it, you're going to miss it. Then we got all these streaming uh, channels, and they just put a whole season out there right at a time. And you could sit down and binge the whole thing. You could do it whenever you want. Doesn't matter. When I, when I want it, I have it. It's convenient. It's easy. And I don't have to just watch one episode. I can watch the entire season at once. I could do it in one sitting if I wanted to. Have you noticed that's going away? These streaming places now, they're starting to put up one episode at a time. Is that driving you crazy? Why? Because we're conditioned that we can get the whole thing at once. I want it all. Now, why do they do this? Well, I was reading, there's probably a number of reasons. Part of it is because they start putting stuff up before production is done sometimes, all kind of stuff. But a big part of it is because they realize they can get more hype if they just put one episode at a time. So they put up one episode, and you got to watch it, and then you go to work, and you talk to your friends. Oh, are you watching this show? Did you see the first episode? Oh, you're not watching. you got to watch it. And then you can get more hype and bring more people into it, and then you build the anticipation for the second one, and it's a whole thing. But we've lost our whole season, for, not all of them, but for a lot of them, You've lost the whole season at once. You've got to wait or build it up so that you could do it. It just is driving people nuts. We do it when we buy stuff, too. We buy stuff on Amazon. Bestseller, one of the bestsellers I checked this week, workout pants. One of the bestsellers on, on Amazon. I love this. I need workout pants because I don't want to be lazy, because I need to be active, because I need to work out. 
I want to buy those pants by clicking a couple of buttons, I will not leave my house. I expect that when I press those buttons, there's going to be somewhere out there that's going to scour, scour through the warehouse, find my pants, put them in a van, drive them to my house, come to my door, and give them to me by the end of today. Amen. <laughs> Have you ever ordered something on Amazon and you go to check out and it's out of stock, and the delivery time is like a week away, you're like, I don't know if this is worth it. <laughs> a week away? Can't they just throw in the van and drive to my house, like my workout pants, so that I can be not lazy and go out of the house and work out? What about our faith? I would love some easy answers, quick fixes, convenient church experience, sprinkle a little morality around, make everything easy, couple hours at church every month, every week is a lot, but every month, a couple of times we could do it, throw the kids into the kids' ministry, they'll teach them something good, hopefully they become good people. We have been conditioned in many areas of our lives to expect fast, efficient, easy, flashy, convenient. And what we're experiencing in our culture in so many ways, because now I'm talking about the deeper stuff when it comes to faith, when it comes to meaning, when it comes to our purpose, who we are and what we are doing, we continue to experience extreme amounts on the grand scale, not every individual, loneliness, isolation, lack of true friendships and intimacy, a deep sense of uselessness, depression, and boredom. And those things, that list, I took from a book written by Henry Nouwen, who wrote that back in the, I want to say the 70s, maybe the 60s, and just looking forward and saying, if I'm speaking to people in our Christian culture in the Western world, what is it that I think is a threat? What do I think that we need to worry about and work on? That's what he put then, and all these decades later, I think he was proved right. We've got in so many places a fairly superficial, I want easy, convenient, quick, answers. And people on large scale are saying, I've realized it doesn't really work. But I think for a lot of us, I'm hungry for something deeper. I don't want to be in the drive-thru anymore. Because it comes out and it, it's fast and it's convenient and it tastes good and it fills me up. But there's no nutrients in it. It's not helping me grow. It's not giving me the energy that I need. It's just a quick hit. And then it's gone and nothing has changed. I want, in this series, talk about tried and true, to talk about what it would look like to test faith and to find something that's deeper and more meaningful, something that works, and to ask, what is it that has lasted for thousands of years when it comes to faith, and to those who would look for something that is more meaningful, something that can change us and that can change the world? Because a faith that is not tested is one that's vulnerable. So I want to talk today about uh, the temptations of, of Jesus uh, over the next uh, few weeks as we come to Easter. Uh, this is a time where Jesus uh, had been baptized, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we read about kind of the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus. We get very, uh, almost nothing about Jesus' growing up period. There's one or two things. And then we get to his baptism, and right after his baptism, he goes out into the wilderness to be tested, and this is the proving ground before he starts his public ministry, before he goes in front of people and teaches and heals and performs signs and, and does all that he is going to do. This is the, the test. 
So Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, this is after the baptism, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and he became very hungry. Okay, a couple of things. He's going to be tested by the devil. We have a lot of visions when we hear the word devil. A lot of them have come through culture uh, and different books and plays and movies over the years. Not always helpful. The devil literally here means the tempter, which is going to make sense because he's going to one, be the one bringing these temptations uh, to, to Jesus. He's going to put Jesus on trial and attempt for him to have to prove who he is, Jesus. This is going to happen for 40 days. Jesus has gone out for 40 days and 40 nights to, be, to fast, and he gets hungry. 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is a significant number in the scriptures for a whole number of reasons. We see that number come up over and over and over. 40, 40 days or 40 days and 40 nights, or sometimes 40 years. It's the time that there was rain for Noah on his ark when there was, you know, the story of the big flood, and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses fasts when he receives the Ten Commandments for 40 days. The spies, when they're... The, Israelites are going into the promised land and they have to spy out the land to see if it's, if it's feasible that they can go into the land, what's in there, what are the people like, all that. They go for 40 days. Uh, there's 40 days of taunting the Israelites uh, for Goliath. You know, the story of David and Goliath when David defeats Goliath. Well, there's 40 days of taunting before David goes and fights him. Elijah, who is this prophet, he travels for 40 days before hearing God's still small voice in the cave cave. Uh, Jonah's warning to the people of Nineveh. Jonah, in, in the story of uh, Jonah and the fish, he gets, well, he's supposed to go to Nineveh and warn them and give them a chance to change and to follow Yahweh. He gives them 40 days. We have 40, 40, 40, over and over days or years, a period. 40 days and 40 nights is very symbolic and probably means something like it's a period uh, that signifies the completion in the realization of event. So it could literally be 40 days that Jesus went out, but there's this deep idea that 40 days is enough for something significant to happen. We need a, a big enough time period for something very real to happen. Others in Jewish culture have noted uh, that 40 days might be the time you set aside for a trial. Like if we really want to test something and go through the motions, the judicial thing, and this kind of, again, hits the context a little bit, you would set aside 40 days. It's like we have time to complete a, a big deal, real event. One commentator says that when something, specifically an event, is practiced and remembered for 40 days, it makes it real and present in our daily lives. It becomes sealed in our works and etched in our memory. In other words, if you want to create a habit, if you want to create this, this take a deep truth and have it kind of come down into you and actually change your life and become part of who you are, you probably need around 40 days. So Jesus goes out for 40 days and 40 nights. He fasts, he's hungry, and now the tempter is going to come. And in this weakened state, this hungry state, He's going to have his faith tested. Verse 3 says, During that time, the devil or the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. It's temptation number one. He says, if you're the son of God, by the way, son of God was a title that around the time of Jesus would have been given to political leaders. It was a way of them, uh, they would deify some of their leaders and previous leaders 
uh, like Caesar Augustus, for example, was called the son of a, a god, um, that his father was deified before him, and then now he is the son of God. It was sort of this propaganda, this way of saying our political leader, our Caesar, our king, the one that we follow has this divine aspect to him, a, a divine role, a, a divine mandate, and that's part of why we have to follow him and why we do what he says and why the world is supposed to look the way that uh, that person wants it to look. And Jesus is often now this title given to Jesus, and it's a way, I think, uh, of Jesus' followers and those who wrote the early versions of our scriptures, uh, wrote it down, um, would go, wow, you've been using this term for Caesar Augustus, for example. We are going to use this term for Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. So here comes the tempter saying, well, if you're the Son of God, not Caesar, why don't you tell these stones to become loaves of bread? It seems, actually, fairly innocuous. Why wouldn't you? You're starving. You haven't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. You're the Son of God. You're Jesus. Well, say, you could do this, and what's wrong with it? You're hungry? Well, turn the stones into bread. Here's what the temptation is, I think. To be immediately productive, impressive, effective, successful, and relevant. To make things happen right away. To be an overnight success. To avoid pain and suffering and need. To be independent. Go and do the thing that's quick and convenient and easy. You're hungry? Well, feed yourself. There's no food around? You're the son of God? Go ahead. You've got the power, don't you? Just do the easy thing. Do the convenient thing. You don't have to say no to what you want, what you desire. You don't have to suffer. But Jesus told them, verse 4, no. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's what, well, it's interesting. Because Jesus later will actually miraculously feed people with bread a number of times. He will multiply bread. We'll talk about this a little bit later. He will make sure that people have all the bread that they can eat and more. There will be bread left over. So why can't he do it here? Why is this a temptation that he should even think about resisting? Why not just turn them in, those stones into bread? Because Jesus didn't go out for bread. He went out to fast. Why did he go out to fast? Why would anyone say no to eating, to doing something that's so basic to what we need? To eat, to be strengthened, to be nourished, we have to do this. Why would he be saying no to it over and over and over? Because he didn't go out to just say yes to every desire. He didn't go out for a quick fix. He didn't go out for something that's convenient. He went out because people don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I didn't come out here for the easy thing. I came out here to hear from God. I came out to be in God's presence. I came out for a while, a season, to say no to what my body wants so that I can hear what my spirit needs, so that I can connect with Almighty God. The response to the temptation of doing what's easy and productive and impressive is to trust that God's presence is greater than my production, that what God wants for me is greater than what I can do for myself, what I can earn, what I can produce, the stones that I can turn into bread. He's hungry for something deeper than what everybody's always searching for, the material stuff. He wants the presence of God. And Jesus has been willing to go out into the wilderness and to deprive himself and to feel the hunger physically, probably to remind him of the hunger spiritually and to long for a word from God. 
to long for something from the lips of God. For a Jewish man, probably someone, well, Jesus knew his scriptures very well, his Hebrew scriptures very well. He would have known that in Genesis 1, there's this beautiful poem about God who speaks all things into creation. Why do I want a word from God? Because the word of God makes things real, creates in the world and in our lives. I want to know the presence of that God. I want to be in his presence more than I want bread to fill me up. When Jesus says this, talking about people not living by bread alone, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is sort of talking about the time period when the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. They had come out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They were worked to the bone in Egypt. They were producers in Egypt. You have to do what Pharaoh tells you to do. And if you don't make enough stuff, you don't build enough bricks, then he's mad at you. Over and over and over, you got to do more. you got to produce more. you got to slave away and earn it. And so God miraculously frees them. They go out into the wilderness. And when they get out into the wilderness, do you know what they do? They complain. What are we going to eat out here? When we were back in Egypt, at least we knew where we were getting our food. At least we knew that we were going to be fed. And over and over, this complaining, oh, we're out here in the wilderness, in the, in the desert, there's nothing to eat, how are we going to, it's, you know, partially when you read those stories in the Bible, you go, come on, guys, like, they were supposed to be following the presence of God, a, a, a pillar of smoke and fire, the presence of God, and it's like, why couldn't you get it? But we all do it. We all complain. Where, where am I going to get what I need? We all get afraid. We all wonder about the next phase of life, the next thing that we need, feeling like we don't have enough. Where is it going to come from? We all do the complaining thing. We all lose faith. We all get scared that we don't have enough. God miraculously fed them with manna. Manna was this bread that every day would just show up and he would go, go out, grab enough for today. Don't worry about tomorrow, but grab enough for today and I'll feed you more. Manna literally in Hebrew means, what is this? Because they had no idea what it was. That's what the word means. What are you eating? What is this? I don't know. What are you eating? What is this? What are you eating? What is this? That's what I'm asking you. No, that's what it's called. We didn't know what it was. It's called, what is it? They didn't understand. What is this? Deuteronomy 8, this is kind of a, a recap of this. And Moses with the people says, be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. Then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands? Yeah, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to your, you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't blister or swell. Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. He did it to teach you that you could go back to Pharaoh and be a slave to production. Someone who does not love you, does not care about you, that wants you to work and work and work and produce and produce and to produce, to do and to do and to do. And you would say, at least they would give me food. But he did it to teach you that you don't live by that bread alone. But rather, I'll paraphrase, 
that you have a heavenly father that wants to provide everything for you. That you don't need to earn everything. You don't need to do everything. That that's up here on a superficial level. But you come out and in the wilderness, you will learn that when you are in need, God will feed you. That when you are hungry, God will give you the food that you need. That he loves you and cares about you. Don't go back to slavery over and over in scripture. We hear that was what was told to them and is told to us in a spiritual sense in the New Testament. Don't go back into this slavery of thinking. It's all about what you can earn and what you can do and how you can follow this rule and that law and all the rest of it. Instead, you live by deeply acknowledging and trusting in the presence of God who loves you and gives you every good thing. From his mouth comes everything that we need. More than production, we need his presence. I think it's amazing that in our, our culture, so, so superficial sometimes, not always, um, this has become how we do faith. And yet, for centuries and centuries and centuries, the message has come to us over and over and over from different uh, authors, spiritual masters. And these are the things that always, always come through. That the things that we are so often not very good at, uh, being silent, going slow, being dependent, are the things that lead us into the presence of God and build in us a trust in the presence of God more than our productivity, more than what we can do, more than what's easy, more than what's convenient, more than what's flashy. Just turn the stones into bread. Just solve these problems quickly. Just make it look good. Make it feel good. And Jesus rejects it, says we need something deeper. Out in the wilderness, I didn't come for bread. I came to feel the hunger and to have that hunger filled by the presence of God. I think one of the core aspects of faith, real deep faith, before we get to morality, before we get to being useful, before we get to doing anything, is acknowledging and trusting in the presence of God and to know that God is holding your life. God is holding our lives. God is holding history, the entire world. And our task is to open our eyes and to find that he's already with us and that he wants to give us everything that we need. How can we do that? How can we grow in that if you want something deeper? And, and right now you would say, I do have that hunger and I want to get out of the drive-thru and I want to come to something that, that, that is deeper, that is more meaningful, that actually is going to sustain my life, is going to change my relationships with God and with other people. How could I start with that? Number one, a quick plug, I would say this. Join us for our prayer learning group on Thursday nights. We've got two left. Uh, even if you didn't go to the first couple, uh, we would love for you to come. One of the things we're doing with this group uh, and by the way, after our services, we have prayer. If, if you need prayer for anything, we have people up front in this corner. Uh, today, we'll invite you after the service to come and to be prayed for. Uh, we want to create an environment here at Westside. We've been talking about this in the last month where we can help each other go into the presence, become more aware of the presence of God. We believe God is always with us, is here, is present, is available to us. We want to learn what are those things that we can do to help open our eyes so that we can see where he is and what he is doing. We can hear the word of God coming to our lives in very real ways to experience his presence. So join us this Thursday and next Thursday. Uh, and we're just learning about different ways that we can pray, different ways uh, that we can approach God. And that's going to be a powerful time. It's been really good so far. Come out on Thursday night at 7 downstairs. Number two, 
embrace some of those things that we often uh, maybe are a little bit scared of or the things that uh, are not, don't come easy to us, especially in a culture where uh, there's always something on, there's always something to distract us, there's always something to do, but embrace silence, turning everything off, solitude, being alone, being alone with scripture, being alone with God, slowness, not having to do, 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 but to stop, to listen, to be on your own, to turn off the podcast, to turn off the TV. I wonder why we never hear from God. Well, we're always distracted. We've always got something on. We're always listening to so many voices. What if part of hearing from God was just turning the volume of everything else down for a while? And then number three, we'll talk about this for a few minutes. What if we asked God to speak to us? What if we expected that God would speak to us in all sorts of different ways? One exercise that we might take that I'll suggest to you, it's been written by a number of people, but maybe the most uh, famous in history was by Brother Lawrence, and he called it Practicing the Presence of God. And he came to the conclusion that he had all kinds of stuff that he was supposed to do, all kinds of stuff that were distracting, all kinds of stuff that would take his attention. But, but what if he could just turn his attention towards God as much as he possibly could in a day? That he could acknowledge the presence of God, that he could welcome the presence of God into as many tasks, as many relationships, as many things he was doing, as many thoughts, as many attitudes to acknowledge that God is with him, that the spirit of God through Jesus is always with him. He just simply needed to see him and look for him more and more and more. And so he would say things like, we simply do that by when we wake up, we acknowledge the presence of God, that the spirit of God is, is here. That as you set out to do a task or you set out to get ready in the morning, you ask God to be with you and to open your eyes that you might see him and you start just to look where God might be at work all around you. Maybe it's when you switch tasks, you get in the car, you walk into work, you go from one task to another while you're working or while you're taking care of the kids, you move from one part of your day to another and you just take that little transition as a moment to acknowledge God's presence, to ask him to be present in the next thing that you do, to lift up any anxieties, any worries, any cares that you might have, to believe that God is present in that moment and whatever it is that you might have to do that you can be with God that he is with you, that you can walk with him, that you can pay attention, that you can pray and spend times waiting in silence and slowness to hear God speak to you, to put prompts in your life, maybe to calm you in certain circumstances, maybe to prompt you to do certain things or say certain things. Maybe it's to have a certain emotion well up in you, whether that's love or grace, something that motivates you to forgive or to care for somebody to lift as many weights and challenges, anxieties, even joys to God throughout your day, to acknowledge his presence, and then to ask at certain times, where have I seen God today? Where am I seeing God move today? What might be God speaking to me through something I read in the scriptures, something that somebody said to me, a circumstance that I'm going through as I acknowledge God's presence more and more and live in it. And as all the things I do are not my focus, but rather the one that I'm with, the Spirit of God that I can walk with, becomes my focus. We see that God's presence can overwhelm us and change us and transform us. To believe that God's presence is greater than my productivity, than what I can do, that what I can work on, that what I can accomplish, instead I can be with him all the time. Every minute of every day, he's here. We just need to become more aware of him, acknowledge him, and trust him. 
and our needs. I need bread. I know, God knows. But the very presence of God, we don't live on bread alone, but by everything, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, Jesus, it's interesting that he rejected turning the stones into bread in the temptation. And then later, uh, I mentioned this before, we read that Jesus, there's a bunch of times where he fed people with bread. He multiplied bread. In John chapter 6, there's uh, this story about how Jesus is out there and thousands of people are following Jesus. Thousands of people. And they all come to him. And they're all there. And, And Jesus is teaching all these things. And you get the idea that his ministry is building momentum and the things that he's doing are impressive. And all kinds of people want to come and listen to him and hear him. And then they get hungry. And the disciples go, we have no food. What are we supposed to do? It would cost all this money and we'd have to go find the food and all the rest of it. And then there's this little boy who comes. Some of you have heard this story. And he's got a couple of fish and some bread. It's nowhere near enough to feed anybody. But Jesus just takes the bread. He gives thanks for it. He gives to his disciples. He says, go distribute it. And miraculously, everybody's fed. And they come back and there's leftovers. They've got so much bread. It's this wow moment. Look what Jesus can do. He's fed everybody with enough bread that they could possibly have. And then Jesus goes out. And everybody, you get this, follows him. Of course you do. Look what this guy can do. And then Jesus says to them this curious thing. He says, you know, you've all had your fill. You've all had the bread. You've all feasted. But really what you need to do is you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Ooh, that's weird. (laughs) Supposed to be. It's supposed to be a bit of a shock. But Jesus is saying, you need to eat my body, my flesh, and drink my blood. You've had the bread, and it fed your belly. And that was a sign. And it wasn't just meant to be like, wow, that's cool, let's follow this guy. It was supposed to point to a greater reality that as much as God wants to feed your belly, and he will, he wants to feed your soul. But the way that that comes is through presence. You need me, and I will give you everything else. It's very similar to what he taught about worrying. You worry about all these kinds of things. He said, don't worry about bread. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. But seek first the kingdom. The presence of God all around you. This is a Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is saying something, but just in a more uh, very concrete and gross way. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You don't need what I can do for you only. You need my presence. And do you know what happened to the thousands and thousands of people who thought Jesus was so cool and did an awesome miracle? Almost all of them left. Ooh, that's weird. Hey, I like the feeding us with bread stuff. The eating your flesh and drinking your blood is gross. And Jesus is left with his closest followers. And he says to them, are you going to go to? I mean, the bread's easy and convenient, isn't it? Feels good, fills you up. You're going to go to? And Peter, and Peter didn't always get it. A lot of times Peter was the guy, he just didn't get what Jesus was saying. And he kind of looks all along the way, like he couldn't figure it out. But this is where Peter clues in and he goes, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. More than what you can produce, we want your presence. That's where the eternal life is. I want something deeper, and I will follow you. So my hope and prayer for us as Westside Church is that as you look to acknowledge and depend on the presence of God in your life and our lives, even in the places that we might never expect, he would provide for every need. He would show himself to be the sustenance of our lives and that we might find eternal life in his presence. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've offered yourself to us, 
We thank you that today in this room, you are here with us, that when we walk out of this room, you will be present with us, that wherever we go and whatever we do, you will be available to us. Would you open our eyes? Help us to see that you are with us. Dim the distractions that steal our attention from you. Help us to move away from that which is superficial and to feast on your presence in your spirit in our lives. There would you give us purpose and meaning. Would you show us love and who we are, our identity? Would you help us to rest when we're worried, when we have anxieties, to know that you're with us and you care for us? When we're not sure where we're going to get what we need, would you reassure us that you have everything that we need, that you are good and generous and gracious and loving, that we can depend on you for everything. And in you are the words of eternal life. We pray in your name. Amen.